this is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 49 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today, I'm joined by a guest whom I consider to be one of the best content creators in the podverse, a master of the soundboard, navigator of the new kingdom, the mind behind the night pickle and the morning mover, a bloke I've been listening to for many years, the one and only Midnight Mike, host of the Our Big Dumb Mouth podcast. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. Mate, what can I say? You have, hands down, one of the best layback chill-out shows around. It's fantastic. Um, not to say that I get all my news of America from you, but I do get quite a bit. It's uh, You seem to filter out all the BS, all the political jargon, and condense it down to just bite-sized morsels for the standard international listener to really consume. It's quite good. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's a labor of love. We try to have as much fun doing the show as we can uh, and throw in little elements of comedy. But obviously, with some of the topics we cover, it's uh, it's very serious. And then all three of us on the show, we we bring our own personalities and uh, perspective on the world. So it's a it can be a very confusing show for people uh, when they first start listening. It uh, can probably throw them for a loop. because most people are probably used to listening to podcasts. Where it's like Joe Rogan. It's like one or two people sitting down to have a long-form conversation. And that's not really what we do. We don't really have guests. We I have more fun uh, BSing with the same people over and over again. It's almost like uh, an old-school uh, tabletop role-playing game session where you have the same characters, you're going on different adventures, and uh, you try to defeat bosses and, and level up that's how i view it and uh, i try to run it that way as well it works great you cover all your bases you've got Kretcher, who seems to be a human encyclopedia you've got joe who just nails geopolitics to an amazing extent and you bring in the paranormal side of things which i have always been into and always loved and you've been talking about the ufo alien topic for many years now so what was it that got you into that type of thinking? What was it that piqued your interest in that type of field? I know ever since a a, a very uh, young person, um, probably as as long as I can remember, I've been interested in the topic. So I was born in 1977. Um, I remember seeing close encounters of the third kind as a, a very young person and, and being uh, mesmerized by the entire movie. And I remember going to the the local library. Uh, and checking out books on the paranormal. Every time I go into any bookstore, starting as for as long as I can remember, I would always gravitate to the metaphysical, the paranormal, and UFO section just to see what was there. And uh, I started reading all those books from a very young age, and then with uh, TV shows like Unsolved Mysteries and In Search Of, I would just consume as much as I possibly could on on the topic, and that really hasn't let up in my life. Uh, there was a period probably in the early 2000s where I wasn't reading as much because I was too preoccupied with doing music and and band stuff, but it's always been a part of my life, and I've always been endlessly fascinated with it, and I feel like I haven't even read enough. There's just so much out there. There are so many other amazing researchers out there that really understand the the lore and all the ins and outs of ufology. Where I feel I, I feel like I'm an amateur, really. 
yeah, there's so much to consume. And I was very similar to you in a lot of regards. I was an 88 baby, a little bit uh, younger than you. But same thing with me. It started off in the school library looking at books about Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. And it quickly gravitated into one year on my 12th birthday. My mum got me this exact book here, the, the Day After Roswell. And that just started my deep dive into the whole UFOlogy and alien kind of topic. And my views on this have changed quite a bit over the past couple of years, but it's something that keeps bringing me back. There's that almost an element of of mystery and the unknown beyond what it is to be human that keeps drawing me back in that that really holds my attention, no matter how many years have passed. Yeah, I got the same. My mom got me that book too. She got it for my birthday. I believe I was... Uh you know, 18 or 19, but she got me that birthday. I remember I, I just plowed through that book as quickly as any other book I, I, I'd ever read. I was just so enthralled with the story of uh, Colonel Philip Corso in the day after Roswell and what he was telling in that book. And I, I like, I'm, I feel the same way about uh, UFOs as you. And now my other co-hosts on OBDM, uh, they're a little bit more apprehensive. Where Joe, he is much more concerned about politics and current events. And for me, it's a little frustrating because to me, UFOs is the combination of political conspiracy and elements of the paranormal, uh, supernatural, if you will. And it should be fascinating for anybody who is interested in political conspiracies and uh, black budgets and where's all of our money going who really throw themselves into uh, the UFO topic, whether you believe it or not. Obviously, there's money being poured into it. Obviously, there's black projects. Obviously, the government, all governments around the world, keep secrets from their people in regards to this topic. So why would anybody dismiss it out of hand? But for the majority of my life, uh, my roommates, who, who I've had since I've, was an adult most of them dismissed the topic out of hand when they would see me reading a book or uh listening to art bell late at night they were like okay this is just some goofy stuff uh but i suspect now uh because of the past uh, three or four years in current events uh, some of their tunes probably have changed a little bit at least now they're open to the idea of talking about ufos and aliens yeah, it's it's been a big shift in thinking that for the longest time since at least the, the late 40s, early 50s, the, the status quo has been to deny and deflect and to cover up. And when you've spoken about in the media when people caught footage or images of UFOs or entities or whatever they were sharing, it was always scoffed at and made a bit of a joke in the media. And I think that's kind of had its stain on societies, has stuck, really stuck in there for a while. But until the last three or four years, like you said, with this new disclosure movement, people are starting to change their tune. Even so much that uh, Joe was recently talking about on the show, he brought a clip to you of um, some um, prominent Americans Tucker, speaking T about Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Carlson. Yes. Now that Tucker's talking about it, now it's okay for Joe to talk about it. He feels as though it's not as taboo, I suppose. And it is quite significant that Tucker Carlson is talking about this topic. He, he hasn't shied away from it, uh, and he's been reporting it uh, probably as, as long ago as uh, 2017, since the New York Times article uh, that really kind of broke the term UAP and the uh, the, the, the BASS and OSAP programs. Um, it made him uh, in the public domain. Uh, Tucker Carlson has been on it. But even then, Joe was uh, pretty apprehensive and, I don't know if he's dismissive. He just doesn't put as much energy and effort into the topic as I do. And likewise, I don't put that much energy into the the, the political realm because to me, the, the political realm, the surface level political stuff that Joe will talk about, um, that changes so much. And it, it seems like a, a certain chunk of it is a distraction for just creating division among people. Yeah, it's different strokes for different folks, I think. Sure. Joe, Joe's a bit more concerned about the inflation of uh, jalapenos and how the society's going in the States and the economy more than anything else. But like you said... Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate yeah, I that do, about do. Joe. Like, he, he has a different palette that he works from and what drives him uh, than I do. And that's why it works. So, like, 
him and I went to art school together. We have different outlooks on how to achieve an art project, but we can get together, combine, trade ideas, trade stories back and forth that will maybe link or get us down the, the path to uh, uh, a relative approximation of a truth about a story. So we're on the same side. We just have different ways of approaching uh, problem solving. It's covering all your bases as well. It's got that healthy level of skepticism and objective thinking. I think Joe has that thousand foot view on it a lot of the time, which is great because then you can identify how, say, maybe 50% of the population who doesn't think this way are thinking on the subject. But would you have ever thought at this point in the game, disclosure would be spoken about so much as it is now? I always imagined that the only way humans would find out about aliens would be the stereotypical mothership over some kind of continents at some point live on television i never thought they'd be just giving it out the way it is it's not like it's been a slow drip feed it seems that they're just blurting it out periodically yeah i didn't uh, i didn't really see this where it is more of it's disclosure through committee where they are asking questions there's testimony there's there's a lot of pull and push back and forth between whistleblowers and the government officials and then uh, the DOD and the Pentagon. So it's a, it's a, a long uh, game of tug, and, tug of war. Uh, I, I thought maybe if it were to happen, it would take place around uh, a war in which that the United States would roll out some pretty amazing technology then they would have to say, we are using this technology. We've been working on it for a long time and we have to roll it out now or we're using it now. And this is how we achieved it. And that would be the, the, the limited form of disclosure. Kind of like in Gulf War One, um, back in the 90s, uh, there was the rollout of the stealth fighters and stealth bombers. And we're pretty advanced tech, uh, completely new and unique designs and just how it looked to the average person um that was rolled out uh, under the guise not on, even under the guise but because of the war in iraq and i remember hearing about the stealth plane when i was probably i would say 10 or 11 uh, my neighbor's dad um worked for an aerospace company and he told we were out back looking at the stars through a telescope um and it was right around the time of like Halley's comet it could have been 1984 1985 and Halley's comet was coming through we were we were trying to take a take a good look at it and i remember like standing back there and him mentioning to both of us that there is stealth technology being used for planes now at my young brain could not wrap my head around that at all i thought maybe invisible planes stealth like uh, like a cloak um Wonder Woman's I had, plane. yeah because that's what i knew at the time and for him to tell us these young people that could not have any concept of this uh to me always stuck with me and then sure enough when they rolled out these planes, they use the term stealth technology. I was like, oh, my God, who was that guy who told me? <laughs> like, who was my neighbor at that point? Like, who was my neighbor? It's um, like I said, I'm a, a born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s type of kid. And the technological advancements I've seen in just my lifetime, let alone yourself, I think that's pretty indicative of some of the, you know, the drip feeding of technology from, say, another life form, another entity that we seem to be getting as a planet in general. I don't think you can put down the sudden leaps in advancements that we've had in the space of 20, 30 years purely down to human ingenuity. I know we're pretty clever cookies, but it seems like we've expanded pretty quickly in such a short amount of time. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I would say yes and no. Uh, when it comes to communication devices and uh, computes, compute cycles, uh, just the, the network and the Internet in general, uh, we've had some pretty significant advancements. But when it comes to um, transportation, it seems like we're lagging. We're still, by and large, using cars and vehicles that are are propelled by 
tiny explosions, fire. We're using firepower. We, uh, we were promised back in the 1950s and 60s this this vision of the future in which we, were, we would have anti-gravity. We would have flying cars. We would have all these automated systems in order to create a better life for humans, in which uh, a full a full week of work, uh, as 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 told to us, would be twenty hours a week because all the automation and robotics and computing would take care of all the production needs of a society, and you could be at home leisurely sipping on iced tea while your robot mowed the lawn. Well, uh, we got great technology for communication, video, photography when it comes to easing the burden of your average working person via technology, it doesn't seem to have happened. It seems like we're all working more in order to be more productive, to generate money for giant corporations. And we're working more. Um, uh, I I think we're working just as much now than, uh, if not more than what, like my parents were working in the seventies and eighties. So, that promise of a more productive future, it has come to be, but it's more productive for the owners of this world and not necessarily the individual. And any technological advancement that has been gained, uh, it's also stripped away our autonomy and our 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 freedom to just kind of have hobbies and to be bored. When yeah. was the last time you were bored? Exactly right. Too much going on all the time. The Jetsons lied to us. We were expecting these robots to do our chores and we got the iRoomba. Um, yep. It's it's interesting that you mentioned to, at one side uh, the digital space and the digital sphere and communication technologies has advanced exponentially, but for the most part, the vehicle capacity in this world has kind of stagnated. It's, and anyone who's been in the, in the military or the Defence Force would know that the majority of technological gear we've got, like um, cars, trucks, helicopters, tanks, for the most part, we've still got the old analog systems and they've kind of slapped the digital technology inside it and just gutted it and replaced the internals. So we've got this idea that we're almost getting the trinkets of technology. We're getting the fun things like the beads. Like if you were to put it into a historical context, it's the Europeans arriving in the new world and buying land with a set of beads and not really giving you the, the the muskets or the firearms or things that could really make an impact technologically. We're getting, I'm like, personally, we're getting, for me, we're getting stuff that creates a, a good number of fun times, uh, cool things to make videos and images and, and to make music, like the whole natural language processing when it comes to, or AI, whatever you want to call it, when it comes to creating uh, digital images and videos and music, like when it comes to that kind of technology, the the way to create art and a large quantity of it in a short amount of time, it's uh, it's pretty insane. Uh, I'm still trying to keep up with all the ways to to create things, to get it out there and make it consumable and enjoyable for people. It's a, it has to be very unnerving for young people who are just leaving college. They think they know what they want to do with their life, but then they have to probably, they should devote at least 10 hours a week of continual education in order to keep up with AI and how that could impact whatever type of area that they want to work in. I have to do that being in cybersecurity and IT, I have to devote a good chunk of my time, not even learning new languages, it's learning what this technology could do for my space that I work in. And for artists out there, either you use this stuff right now and you learn how to use it, or you are going to get left behind in five years easily. Like this morning, before we were uh, uh, getting together to talk here, I was using MidJourney to create a set of icons that are paranormal related. So, you know, have like UFO, Bigfoot, uh, aliens, um, a, a set of vector icons that I can then use and uh, manipulate in the way I choose for our Discord server. So like when you're in Discord, there are people who have uh, various uh, icons to represent themselves. I'm going to upload them. And I could do that in a span of 15 minutes where 
as a graphic designer, that would have taken me probably 20 hours about 10 years ago. What, I mean, that is production. That is efficiency in my eyes. Now, it's removing a good chunk of human creativity and inspiration. And uh, that is a bit of a an issue. Because inspiration comes from a number of different places. And uh, sometimes it's shot into you. Sometimes like, artistic inspiration is shot into you from unknown. It's almost like a, a little invisible finger comes in, touches your brain, and next thing you know, you're, you're writing a brilliant song or creating a brilliant uh, drawing or painting or inventing something. And that type of inspiration, I think, is going to be less frequent with this AI that rolls out and generates stuff, it's going to ultimately start to look all the same and become very muddy. And the, the, the signal-to-noise ratio is going to be so insane, and there's going to be so much of the mud out there, it's going to be even more difficult for people to find new and unique pieces of audio, whether it comes to podcasting, music, or art, that is truly driven from inspiration. It's going to be tough to distinguish the two. It's truly smashing the artistic and creative fields. I'm a primary school art teacher, and getting kids to understand the capabilities of AI-generated art, like a mid-journey or a crayon or, or something similar to that fashion, how can you use it but not take away your creative streak? That's always been a challenge. And and these kids are going to be surrounded. They're growing up only knowing that there's, I can do this myself or I can get something else to do it for me. It's how do you get that balance of having trust in your own abilities or developing your own abilities without being too reliant on something that can give you instant gratification? And like you just mentioned, it's eventually going to get to a point where it's going to be a, a mucky gear type of situation where it's going to start to look very similar. There's no individuality in it and you won't have those, uh, those am amazing points where someone comes out with a new form of art style or a new technique or a new amazing painting, because everything's going to be so similar in the way it's, it's made and, and put out into the world. That's what it feels like. Almost like right now we're on the cusp of that. And, um, my stepdaughter, who just graduated college with a degree in digital art, I am, like, urging her, uh, like, learn how to use MidJourney in Dolly, uh, not, to re not, not to replace what you do, but to use this art as a jumping-off point, almost as a way to quick-start your ideas, take what you want from the image, and then introduce your own things. It will help. Uh, expedite whatever kind of project you are working on. And unfortunately, in, I, I will say for at least the America, probably Australia, most Western countries, when it comes to art and entertainment, it seems like good enough is all they want. They want something that is good enough. Now, there are a few artistic visionaries out there maybe writers producers who want the best no matter they will keep pushing for the best the best the best but for most uh the studios and especially if there's a deadline a game studio uh they will use this stuff because it is good enough and that's what i think we're where we're at it's going to be good enough and people will accept it yeah well you look at half the movies that come out now you look at the, the digital art or <laughs> the renderings yeah. they're using it's not the level that you can remember growing up as you saw a movie and you're like geez those are the best special effects i've ever seen and now you're seeing more of it that's subpar to the point you wonder how it ever got off the market and yeah into because the... they have deadlines yeah absolutely they, they got they, they turn got and burn turn and I watched, burn i watched the uh the first uh 20 minutes of the new indiana jones movie the dial of destiny and I uh, I enjoyed the first 20 minutes of it. Now, the, the first 20 minutes of that movie included Harrison Ford as a young man. So they had to use deep fakes. They had to age regress him. And it looked good enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, you could tell in certain lighting and certain points in the conversation where it was fake because the, the, the face just wasn't there. And they did not or maybe they don't know how to 
uh, age regressed the voice of Harrison Ford because he still sounds like a gruff old man. He doesn't have that spunk and energy to his voice that he had in his 30s and 40s. So that's lacking right now. And I think they face the same thing. Disney faced the same thing when they were trying to age, age regress Luke Skywalker, where if you're just watching casually, peripherally, and out of sight of your eye, it's good enough. But everyone that I know who loves these movies, they are watching hyper-focused because they haven't seen these characters in such a long time. And so it is glaringly obvious that it is fake. And maybe they are forgiving. And maybe uh, the audience now is perfectly okay with good enough. And that's where I think we might be at with UFO disclosure uh, to kind of tie it back around, where if the government comes out and says, well, yeah, we do have aliens. Uh, we can't go into it because of national security. Yeah, we do have technology that could benefit humanity, uh, but we can't disclose it because of national security interests. Um, that might be good enough for most people to just drop it after that. It won't be good enough for me, but it'll be good enough to maybe make a majority of the people happy, and then they can move on, and we can figure out what to do after that. And speaking of what is good enough in regards to where these things are coming from, because there's so many potential places these things, these entities could come from where they hail from. You've got the extraterrestrial idea. You've got interdimensional. You've got ultra-terrestrial. You've even got demonic being thrown around a bit now. That's very big in the, the UFO scene. Are there any particular areas there which you think your your gut instinct leans towards the most? Uh, my my gut instinct at this point in time is leaning towards that uh, for as long as humanity has been around, at least one or two of these groups have also been around in parallel on Earth here. Uh, now, that could be underground. They could have underground bases. They could have bases at the uh, bottom of the ocean. I think both those are uh, probably plausible. I, I do rely on remote viewing a bit when it comes to this. So what what other remote viewers have seen? And there's been some pretty uh, amazing remote viewers out there that have said, okay, yeah, we do have alien bases. There's an alien base in the mountain in Africa. There's one there's an alien base in the uh, the mountains of Alaska, and there's an alien base on on the bottom of the ocean uh, off the Pacific coast uh, of, of California. Uh, I would put credence in that. There are some pretty uh, good remote viewers, and I suspect that is the case. And I think a lot of the stories that have filtered out to the UFO community, uh, at least since the 40s and 50s, I think some of those are real. Um, like the, the, for instance, the deal that the United States government possibly made with a, a race, we'll just call them aliens because I mean, that's what they are to us, uh, with a, with a, a race of aliens. I suspect that some sort, sort of deal like that did happen. Uh, now the details are a bit murky. Uh, not everything that uh, gets filtered out is 100% true. And that's part of the goal or, the skill of any researcher is to dig through what do you think is the the real part of the story and what is the 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 BS thrown in to kind of obfuscate the entire narrative and that's that's the disinformation campaign that has been waged against the the worldwide public in regards to UFO. I suspect that they do leak out real information, but it's obfuscated by a bunch of malarkey that is not applicable to the overall narrative, and then. They can say, well, obviously, uh, there's some uh, untrue statements in this story, so we can dismiss the entire story out of hand. Now, when it comes to the meeting and the signing of the agreement between the ET race and uh, and humans, it, that supposedly took place under the Eisenhower administration, and that supposedly took place at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is like two hours away from me. In exchange for technology, we allowed them to abduct X amount of humans. And uh, I, I think that's probably mostly true. There's probably some details that uh, were left off. Uh, we didn't get everything right. But uh, that story has come out not just from uh, people close to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, but 
famous test pilot, uh, Gordon Cooper, has said that. And it's like, okay, if that guy uh, who has credibility and and a lot to lose uh, when it comes to just uh, being a legend, um, why would you say that? What what benefit would it be for for Gordon Cooper to to say something like that? So I think I think a lot of these things you, you gotta you gotta take with a grain of salt, but I lean in the direction that there's probably good chunks of information in there. Yeah, absolutely. Even modern entertainment, films, television series, these types of shows are either intentionally or unintentionally leaking information for possibly two purposes. One, to discredit people so that if someone comes forward, they can go, oh, that was on that TV show. That was Stargate SG-1. What's this guy going on about? Or it's priming the public to get them ready for when you know disclosure does actually happen. It's almost like laying the foundation for social acceptance of a norm that could be going forward. American Horror Story had a series that goes on with the exact um, deal that you were outlining there, where the government made a deal with alien entities. They were given pieces of technology, but they were allowed to abduct people at will for nefarious purposes. So here's the... Uh, I, I have a... I have a- I have a quick piece of audio. Do you want to hear it? This yeah, is absolutely. audio of, of, of Gordon. I think this is Gordon Cooper. So I, I got this back in uh, 2021, I guess. So this is, I think, uh, Cooper talking about the the film, the meeting. I think there were extraterrestrial pilots flying, no doubt about it. Well, that was, I was, found, I was having some cameramen film the installation of a, of a precision landing facility that we were putting in right on the edge of the dry lake. And this saucer flew right over him and put down three little gear and landed out on the dry lake bed. And they went out to, uh, <clears throat> picked up their cameras and moved on out toward him filming. And he lifted off, put the gear back in the well and climbed out at a very high rate of speed and disappeared. And so while I was uh, going through all the regulation books and finding out the number to call in Washington to report it, uh, I had them go over and develop the film. By the time they got back with the developed film, I was on the higher and higher and higher <clears throat> level officer talking to me. Finally, with the colonel telling me to, uh, you know, when the film arrived at my desk to put it in the carrier pouch, there would be a courier there at my office by that time already. And, and they'd arrange for him to fly in our base airplane back to Washington with these films. And uh, do not run prints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we stuck them in the courier pouch. Did you watch the film? We didn't have a chance to run it. I had a chance to hold it up to the window and look at it. It was certainly a good film. Good close-up shots? Good close-up shots. Nothing like I'd ever seen. Double lenticular shape. Same. Didn't have a cupola on it or anything. It was a... Pretty much the same basic shape. But this time I was involved in the research and development and doing very classified programs myself, you know, at the test center. So I knew that we didn't have any vehicles of that kind. And I was 99, 9 sure that the Russians didn't have any of that type either. That's a different clip, but uh, that's, uh, yeah, uh, Gordon Cooper talking about filming a UFO that came down on a dry lake back. Uh, so... He's willing to come out and talk about it. Uh, other pilots are willing to come out and talk about it, and we still don't get a lot of movement on this. And I, I think I have another clip somewhere where he, he talks about the meeting at, uh, uh, I think it's Wright Patterson Air Force Base between the aliens and the humans and the deal that was struck. Now, according to some uh, remote viewers, uh, that deal that we made, bad deal. Uh, not the best deal. Uh, the supposed exchange uh, of technology that the aliens were supposed to give us versus the humans we were going to give them because apparently uh, human trafficking is a big thing and whatever our bodies are, whatever our souls are, are very important to these aliens. Uh, They've given us just enough technology to kind of keep us on, on the hook. It's like a, the carrot in front of the horse where they, they keep moving that carrot. And we keep reaching for it. So we keep 
abiding by the deal. Now, the deal also includes a secrecy clause, meaning that the United States government as long uh, cannot, or at least whoever signed the agreement, some people probably within the DOD are probably upholding this agreement, they cannot reveal uh, the nature of this agreement. It, then it would basically void the contract between us and this uh, negative ET race. Now, there are supposedly other good uh, ET races out there, but they would not help us in the way that the military industrial complex wanted. Uh, they wanted uh, the military industrial complex wants technology for weapons, defense, all of that kind of stuff. And the good ET race is like, eh, we can't do that. Um, they're, they're more along the lines of Star Trek uh, when it comes to the prime directive, where they cannot inject their own technology into our way of life in society for fear of too much disruption. But the the badder ET race, the more evil, I suppose, want to use that word, they didn't have any issues with that at all. And so, so it's, uh, there's this wait-and-see situation by the good ones out there. So it's almost like a, a Captain John Luke Picard versus the Captain Jane Way approach to the Prime Directive. We've got some that don't really care what they do to us and others that are very standoffish. Yeah. Uh, according to these remote viewers, and it, it seems that way. Now, the article that came out, I would say a few weeks ago, about the CIA's uh, crash retrieval program using uh, like JSOC, and uh, these elite commando squads by the Air Force where the CIA will identify a crashed UFO and then they'll go out and retrieve it. Well, they do have mechanisms to bring these craft down. But they have like anti-UFO technology where they can in some way disrupt their flying capabilities and they crash down. And then we go out, we get them. Now, according to some remote viewers, the ones that we are bringing down, they're more aligned with the good side of stuff and that we're not bringing down the, the, the people we made deals with because, well, that would just violate the deal. So they said, well, if you want to bring things down, fine, bring down this group and we will do our best to uh, assist you in reverse engineering some of this stuff. But I don't know how much uh, advancement we have made. Um some of the stories are pretty incredible that have come out, especially with um, uh, the most recent disclosure project run by Dr. Greer. There was a, a former Marine who flat out said that when they were assisting with the earthquake in Indonesia in 2004, that his squad came across a large UFO in the woods that was being uh, operated by and guarded by black-clad humans, uh, contractors that he, he suspected, and that they were operating this UFO, and it looked to him like they were smuggling humans, that they, they, the, the cargo that they were putting on this large UFO were in like almost human-sized containers being put on this thing, and then the UFO took off. So incredible stuff like if that is our tech that we're able to build able to maintain and we understand physics uh in in that way to where it's it's no longer even a concern about traveling to a different star system in the span of a few minutes if we have that then uh i'm not even saying we if they have that uh, like the humans in charge then the game is over um, they have complete supremacy over the globe. And how do you lobby? Like, how do you get like you, the United States or even the world's public to lobby this group of hyper advanced humans to give up their tech to benefit humanity? I don't, I don't see why they would willingly do that considering that they've gone to crazy lengths to keep it secret, ranging from kidnapping, death, abduction. Um, they've gone to, every evil length to keep that secret, to maintain that kind of control and secrecy. So I don't see what a bill from our Congress is going to do. No, a few phone calls and angry letters isn't going to change anything. It's always been a case of take it with a grain of salt when you have whistleblowers and people come out 
But these people are trained observers, and if they're in a court of law giving evidence, generally they would have a greater amount of respect for their testimony. But as soon as they're outside of the, the forces or they're just a, signaled as a whistleblower, they seem to be discredited quite a bit. And when I was in the RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force, I naturally I went out of my way to ask someone in the intelligence branch, you know, without saying, are UFOs real, are aliens real? And he turned and he looked me in the eye and said, I can't confirm or deny anything, but all I can say is if you were to go out every night of the week for a month looking at the stars, you wouldn't want to go to sleep ever again. And he left it at that. Well, I mean, that's isn't that confirmation pretty much? Pretty much. <laughs> pretty much is confirmation. And um, I, 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 there are people here in America that when confronted with this information, I don't know if they would know what to do with it. Like if the government says, yeah, UFOs, uh, they're real. They're piloted by this different race of people. We don't know their intent and they have complete air supremacy over our country and every other country in the world. I'm not sure if your average person is going to consider the implications of that or if they are, or they're just going to go like, okay, yeah, we've known that for years, but I got bills to pay. Uh, they're, because they have too many other things to worry about. Where if people in the Pentagon, their entire job is to worry about the implications of this. And when you have people that are brought up as Christians and they're brought up to believe in Jesus Christ and they go back and read the Bible and maybe they have access to uh, different research, uh, they come to the conclusion that these things are demons and that they made deals they made their agreement with biblical demons, and now they're in, they made a, basically a deal with the devil, and they're in it. They don't know how to get out of it, and they sure as hell do not want to tell the public that the United States government has made a satanic pact. Now, that's a very Christian view of what possibly could be going on, but they also might have a different understanding of what this reality is. And as a general... Uh, four-star general with access to this information, how do you come out and say that, yeah, we made deals with this technologically advanced demon race who has been, manipula been manipulating our DNA for the past 70 years, and their true goal is to hijack our soul in an effort for them to achieve higher level levels of consciousness? That's not going to fly very well with the, the average public. They, they don't even know what that means that we're part of some sort of breeding program so they could use our soul in order to get to higher realms of existence. That's, that's going to open up a whole other swath of questions about what is death? What is our life? And what exactly did they manipulate us in us? And how many people are you authorizing per year to be abducted by these things to be experimented on? And so maybe that's why they're so guarded with not wanting to come out and just say aliens are here because it's going to unpack all these things and someone somewhere will have to be held responsible. Yeah, well, it seemed like in the 90s, the, the argument against not disclosing this to the world was that it would cause such a schism or a rift in the people who have faith or a religious approach to life that it would have the potential to cause mass suicides around the globe. But you've seen that likes of the Catholic Church really lean into this idea of space brothers and life on other planets, not um, disproving the, the idea of Christ being a universal God, then if he created us, he created them as well. So NASA's kind of preempting this themselves, getting ready for disclosure, knowing that it's possibly going to happen and they just want to get ahead of it and and make sure it doesn't go wrong for them. Now, you mentioned the idea of Christians looking at this through the lens of it's a, a demonic lens. Now, my personal approach to that would be similar to that, but what we call aliens and demons, maybe they're one in the same thing and they're not either either. They're something combined with those two, possibly interdimensional, something like that. But we see a lot of this talk now happening with the Collins elite and that there's elements within the American military industrial complex that saw this as a demonic entity and they tried to do their best to try and stave it off or prevent the bad guys from winning, essentially. What have you seen in that within, say, the last couple of years? Would you say that's a new approach in the UFO community? Um, I would say, I don't know if it's new, but it certainly seems to be 
resurfaced uh, pre- at least. Yeah, more prevalent, I suppose. Um, with the, I guess the the rise of prominence of Skinwalker Ranch and whatever that place is. Um, you have George Knapp and Colm Kelleher write the original Skinwalker Ranch book that came out in the early 2000s. But since then, they also wrote the book uh, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. And in there, they kind of uh, touch on the fact that within the Pentagon, yeah, there is a division within the Pentagon, meaning that one side wants to know more about the phenomenon at Skinwalker Ranch, ranging from UFOs, Bigfoot, portals, poltergeists, all that kind of stuff. And the other side is like, no, this is, this is evil stuff. This is bad stuff. We should not be poking our nose over there because it is demonic. And how do I mean, when you have those kind of positions and those people have authority uh, because they've been at the Pentagon for so long, how do you really challenge that? You, I would suppose you would have to wait for them to retire out and only hire people that would adhere to your worldview that we need more scientific research into this area. And we might, we might be seeing some of that, at least here in the United States, uh, our military has been, uh, there's been a big shakeup within uh, who is running things and who is also being enlisted to, to serve. And it does seem like there's more of a woke agenda within the military and I'm not sure if that lends more uh, to a UFO disclosure, if that's a good thing or or not. I don't know. Um, it, it seems like you want to have that that debate go on of what is practical and good for humanity to investigate versus which which air avenue is not beneficial to us. And uh, there's still a lot of questions about Skinwalker Ranch, whether that that whole area is just a psychological testing ground or if there is some kind of genuine artifact buried in the surface of of the ranch there that is producing all these anomalies your uh, woke military at the moment might come just the right time with the number stations talking about canine type of uh, aliens out there making contact so we could actually roll out those people that are furries and they can yeah. make contact for us. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, dress them up as dogs and have them go talk to the dog aliens. And it's all good at that point. Uh, <laughs> we meet them on equal ground. Uh, these topics are scary to most people. And it's it does. It just feels like um, when you bring these up, I, I, I will talk about this every now and again. When I go out, someone will ask me about UFOs and I can't even get into this level of, of detail with it because most people are not prepared to have this level of conversation. They want to, they want to keep it at the surface. Like, Oh yeah, UFOs. They, oh yeah. The government's talking about it. They sure does seem to be maybe real now, but they're not willing to talk about alien abductions at this point. They're not willing to talk about the variety of alien humanoids that have been witnessed by people all across the globe for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They're not really prepared for that kind of thing. So when they, so when there is a, an assessment done on whether the public is ready for full disclosure, I would say most people are are not ready. And I I want to believe like there's people within like our CIA and our government that are just people like me. And they genuinely are looking out for our best interest. But then you hear these stories come out that they have this tech and they have these things. And if they had any compassion in in their blackened hearts at this point, why wouldn't they want to start to try to get us to a Star Trek future versus uh, the Galactic Empire future of Star Wars? It seems like they're leaning in the Galactic Empire direction versus the Star Trek version. Yeah, especially when you consider nearly every piece of technology that we've developed there, quotes, it has a practical application within society that then becomes weaponized. So it makes mm-hmm. you wonder if they do have these amazing flying craft that could decimate a city with a single zap, what type of power could that have to, say, run the entire United States? What types of technology could be used in medical treatments? It's... It's a lot that we're missing out on if it's truly the case. 
yeah, and it, it would it's frustrating because we're so damn close. We are. It feels like we're so damn close. Um, but also like we're so close with this technology, but it does feel like we have. If I just look around, my, the room I'm in is not that different than what I grew up in in the '90s. Yeah, I got some better computer screens. Yeah, some of the audio equipment's a little better, but it's just they're they're minor, minor differences, and it's really not that different than the, the '90s and the early 2000s. It's like we're we have been stagnated on purpose from getting to that next level. And all the advancements that humanity has made are behind the scenes, kept secret. And if you're some sort of independent scientist who maybe stumbles on something, well, then you're taken care of. You're either brought into the program in the system or you're taken out. Yeah, exactly. Um, before we finish up, I've got a little game for us to play. But first, is there any single case, uh, abduction, sighting, that is the the smoking gun for you. Is there any case at the moment that you would point to anyone and, and say, hey, at least look into this? Smoking gun. Uh, no, because, well, there's, I would say like there's two cases that I find super fascinating. One, uh, Rendlesham Forest, uh, early 80s. You have uh, army officers out investigating this crazy light coming from the uh the forest there is audio documentation there is uh a diary there is uh statements to the superiors at the time very well documented case of a ufo landing down near and uh, a military base and it's documented i would say that i don't know necessarily smoking gun but the the, the gun has definitely been chambered with that one uh, and then there, there there are goofier, crazier stories, like the story of Donald Shrum, where Donald Shrum was out hiking in, I believe, the, the American Southwest, where he saw a UFO, and it landed down. He was very apprehensive about what he saw, so he, he decided to hide himself in a tree. He climbed a tree in order to get a better view and to not be spotted by these uh these creatures that were leaving the UFO. And what he saw was just a, a crazy scene of small humanoid creatures, large robots that were scouring the land, almost as if they were collecting things from the environment to take back with them. And they saw him up in a tree and they wanted to collect him too. So they made every, every effort to try to get up the tree to collect him, the human as a, I would suspect a specimen to be cataloged and taken back to somewhere, but he fought him off. He fought him off by lighting piece, pieces of his clothing on fire and throwing them at, at like this giant robot creature or the humanoids. And, it, and that battle lasted for hours, well into the dawn until these humanoids gave up, got in their UFO and took off. And the, those, those cases like that, um, tough to prove it's just testimonial but they're so bizarre that i gotta throw that in there too yeah it's a hell of a story to make up that guy should be working in hollywood if that's the case yeah uh, the, the one case that i would go to and i wouldn't necessarily call it a smoking gun either because of the way it was handled is the phoenix lights it was a case mm -hmm. of the suppressor being on the pistol at that point because it's the largest mass sighting event in recorded history. People saw it. It was filmed from multiple locations. It blacked out the stars as it went over the city. But the way that the the governor or the mayor of that of that city handled it just made a mockery of it, and it kind of fell away into obscurity in a lot of ways. Yeah, it it uh, it was a big uh, a big deal while it happened. And then uh, about a week or two later, it just kind of faded away. And um, yeah, I talked to people when I lived in the Phoenix, I talked to people and no one that I knew uh, there was living in Phoenix at the time when that happened. Everyone besides my uncle, who was at the the uh, worked at the Air Force Base there. And he told me that according to his uh, uh, base colonel. Uh, it was not our aircraft up there. Now, he did not say it couldn't have been flares from a different airbase, but his base colonel told him that it wasn't anything that we had up there. And that's what he told 
the news reporters who were coming to the base to get answers about what was going on in the uh, in the sky over Phoenix. That was absolutely wild, mate. Absolutely wild. Yeah. Now, I can see you've got a picture of uh, Mel Gibson from Bird on a Wire behind you, so that tells me you're a man of culture and taste. Oh, yes. So I thought I'd play a, a quick little listicle game with you. I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to see if you can pronounce these Australian named locations for me. Okay, let's do it. All righty, here we go. <laughs> Can you read out the first location there, sir? Uh, I would say number one, Cooper Petty. Ooh, so close. Cooper Petty. Number Cooper two. Cooper Petty. Okay. Number two. All right. Uh, Laba. <laughs> Pretty good. Mululaba. Okay. Well, how do you say it again? Mululaba. Okay. Okay. So a lot of these are Aboriginal words, so they're a, a bit of a tongue twister. Sure. So I'll give you that. The third one, sir. Wagga wagga. <laughs> that is how you pronounce it with the American accent. I'll give you that. We would say wagga wagga. Wagga wagga. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Uh, number four. Uh, Bathurst. It's pretty good. Bathurst. Bathurst. Okay. So I was trying to uh, exaggerate some of those Bathurst. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the last one. Oh, boy. Uh... Let's see. Kuli uh, Nan. Uh... Uli Young Nobing. Pretty good. This could be a sound drop for you on the show, by the way. Ready? Maybe. Yeah. Cool your nobbing. Cool your nobbing. Cool your nobbing. Is that, is that a, a, a place? That's a place. Cool your nobbing. What's there? Uh, a mine. A big, okay. <laughs> giant mine. <laughs> <laughs> but it's she's got a nobber. It's almost like it's built for your show, that name. So. Yeah. There we go, mate. You did pretty good. Um, I'd say the closest one you got would have been probably Bathurst. You did pretty good with that. Yeah, yeah. Sounds that sounds some pretty similar to some towns and locations here in Ohio, but I, I just took it in a different direction. So <laughs> perfect. Uh, for the people who haven't listened to your show before, um, where can we find your work? You can go to ourbigdumbmouth.com. Uh, or obdmpod.com or just search obdm on youtube or rumble and that should bring up the show and uh, every podcasting platform has uh, i think our podcast on us that is searched for our big dumb mouth awesome thank you uh like i said everyone fantastic show it's in my regular rotation Perfect. It's I liken it to like a Good Morning America or a nightly news that has a little bit of comedy and fun in it. It's just a couple of mates hanging out, talking about what's going on, talking about some crazy fun stuff, and you'll even get to hear Mike try to put on accents. Now, Mike, sometimes, you, sometimes, <laughs> for someone that can do an Australian accent, you make a really good Ringo star. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem at all, mate. Thanks for your time. Always a pleasure having you on. Take care, Drew. Oh, 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 oh,
Hey, everybody, it's closing time. You don't gotta go home, but you can't stay here.